Jennifer. So uh, today we're here to talk about designing behavior change. How do we apply behavioral science into the products that we build? So my path into behavioral science is a little bit of an unusual one. Uh, it wasn't through psychology. It wasn't through behavioral economics. It wasn't through social science. Actually, for about 10 years of my life, I was, uh, I was a professional magician. Now, before you try to steal my lunch money and give me an atomic wedgie, hear me out. Uh, I promise it's relevant. Um, what people usually think of when they think about magic is they think about the sleight of hand and the secret mechanics, which is interesting, but it's actually missing the point. The essence of magic is actually about understanding how we as humans consume the world around us and how we react to it. So if I put something on your left versus on your right, how does that change your spatial reasoning and whether you're going to grab it out of my hand? If I tell you something now versus 10 seconds from now, how does that change the way you experience those 10 seconds and maybe what you'll do next? The secret mechanics are interesting, but what produces the magic is actually understanding how our minds work and how we make decisions. What I didn't realize after doing this for about 10 years was that I'd actually stumbled upon an entire field of study. There were researchers who were actually learning about how our minds work. Researchers who are now legends among us. Folks who you might recognize their names, like Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky, uh, Herbert Simon, Dick Thaler. These were the pioneers of behavioral science. And inadvertently, I'd actually been using their learnings in my magic. Inadvertently, I'd actually become a practitioner of their work, starting at the very ripe age of 11. Now, just to get ahead of any questions, that picture was not taken yesterday, so I'm not 11 years old, despite my taste in music. Uh, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was only 11. But what I realized was that the magicians before me had actually been doing this for centuries. And so then I immersed myself into the theory first, understand what had these researchers actually learned about the science? What did they learn about how our brains work? What were these behavioral mechanisms that they discovered? And how can we apply those learnings back into, of course, the magic? And how we could take what we've learned, how we take what we could learn from the magic and apply it back into the science and progress the science. And surprisingly, that's actually exactly what I do today in the context of technology. Take the most robust learnings that the folks in the academic world have figured out and try to apply it into a product that we use in our everyday lives. And that's something I think that everyone in this room, even the people who are walking right by us to a different talk, can actually do in their everyday lives. Whether it's applying it into the product that you're building, or into how you build your team, or even how you live your own life and how you achieve your own goals. So let's switch gears for a second and let's talk about the science itself. What is behavioral science? If I were to define it in three words, I would say that behavioral science is how we decide. It's about understanding how we take in the stimuli around us and how we make decisions as a result of it. And these learnings, when you study how we behave, what's interesting is that often how we behave conflicts with, what's that word? Oh, logic. And so often you'll understand why we do some of the things that you don't think that we'd actually do. Let me give you a few examples. So this first one was something that folks studied in the context of a car wash. They had uh, this punch card where if you uh, got your car wash eight times, the ninth one would be free, simple enough. So they gave this card to about half the folks coming through the car wash. For the other half, they gave them this very similar card that had 10 slots, but two of them were pre-filled out. 
So for those of you who are less mathematically inclined, that results in a card also with eight spots you have to fill out, and you get your ninth car wash free. Now, what researchers wanted to figure out was which one of these would result in more redemptions of that ninth free car wash. So by show of hands, how many people think that the, the card with eight slots performed better? Okay, a few of you. How many of you think that the two cards performed the same? Okay, they, well, even fewer. How many folks think that the one with 10 slots performed better? Okay, a lot of you. Keep your hands up for a second. Keep your hands up. How many of you think that the card with 10 slots performed more than 10% better than the one on the other, the other one? Okay. Keep your hands up if you think that that card performed more than 25% better, more than 50% better, more than 75% better, more than 100% better. That guy is a huge optimist. Give him a big round of applause. That's great. Actually, that card performed almost 80% better. Now think about what that really means. Think about if you went back to your day job today and you improved conversions by 80%, what, that, what would happen? All I'm saying is don't forget about your new friend Kelvin when you get that promotion. <laughs> now, what psychologists call this is the endowed progress effect. And what the endowed progress effect says is that when we see that we are making progress towards something, we actually have this innate desire to try to achieve it and finish off that goal. And it turns out that this is true even when that progress is artificial and it was given to us. And so in other words, when we get this card with 10 slots, we think, wow, I'm 20% of the way there. I can do another 80%. But when you get the first card, you think, I'm only 0% of the way there. I can never do this. Forget about it. I'm not even going to try. And so this is a really simple theory that has a lot of practical applications into UI design. If you're thinking about how you want to build your progress meter to get people through a registration flow, or how you want to help people set their goals, this is something that has a really big impact on how your users behave through that flow. Now, I'll give you one more example of behavioral science. This is actually my favorite study that I've, of all the studies that I've read. It takes place in a mall, where researchers went around and asked folks and said, sorry, madam or sir, would you have some coins to take the bus, please? So asking you for some change to take the bus. And for those of you who are of the profiling type, it's, let's say, a man or a woman in their mid-20s, dressed nicely but very casually. Okay. So by show of hands, how many of you would give coins or give change to someone who came up to you in the mall and asked you for change like this? By show of hands. Very few of you. Okay. So the first conclusion is that most of you are jerks. It's great. Uh, and I'm glad that I have a way home already today. So they did this for about half of the people in the audience, or the half of the people in the mall. For the other half, they asked the exact same thing, but they added in this sentence and said, but you are free to accept or refuse. So you can say yes or you can say no. Not adding a whole lot of information, but how many of you by show of hands would now give uh, uh, change to, uh, to that person? OK, basically about the same, still very few. What's surprising is that when it was just the question, about 10% of people gave them change. So I apologize for calling you jerks. It seems like that most people are jerks. Now, what's crazy is that when they added in the sentence that said, but you are free to accept or refuse, there are almost five times as many people gave change to the researchers. Now, that is so crazy to me. Why does that happen? Now, psychologists explain this using something called reactance. And the idea behind reactance is that it, reactance is our response when someone threatens our autonomy. And the best way I can describe this is, if you think back to when you were eight years old, think back to when you were a kid. So we already met young Kelvin earlier, so let's bring him back for a second. 
And I grew up in frigid Canada, so around this time of year, it's pretty cold. And I'd run out the door, my mom would say, Kelvin, put on your coat. And of course, in the infinite wisdom of being an eight-year-old, I'd say, no, exactly. But why would I do that? And then I'd keep walking out, going about my day, and obviously, I would freeze. <laughs> so why would young Kelvin do that? I mean, look at that face. Young Kelvin is no chump. Why is he out in the tundra that is Canada without a coat? Well, it turns out that when we're growing up, we start to be able to make our own decisions. We start to gain agency in our lives. And when someone tries to take that away by telling us what to do, we have an automatic response to protect our freedom, protect our ability to choose. And so we'll even say no when something makes perfect sense. Well, it turns out that that feeling doesn't go away when we grow up. And so even when we're adults and someone tries to take away our freedom, take away our autonomy, take away our agency, we automatically respond by saying no. And that's what researchers call reactants. This is an incredibly important idea as you're thinking about how you want to tell your users how to use your product. Or if you're coaching your users to do things that are actually good for them, even though you might have good logic behind it, they still might say no because of the way that you're saying it. So these are just two really simple concepts of the many, many that are out there of why behavioral science can be so practical and so helpful as we're building our products. And so if you were to only take one thing away from this talk, it's that when you're thinking about behavior change, about applying behavioral science, details matter. How you frame that progress to users, how you get them to set their goal, whether or not you frame something as a question, are you threatening their autonomy? Incredibly important. So, that's the science part of it. Now, let's talk about practical application. So, the idea of applying theory into the product is, into a product is not a new concept. In fact, even in behavioral science, it became incredibly popular in the 70s, where folks, particularly in the consumer packaged goods space, would be using this. So, people like Procter & Gamble would realize that they were really competing in a commoditized space like detergent, and they learned tricks. Like, if they had a high-priced detergent and a low-priced detergent and a medium-priced detergent, people would gravitate towards the middle one because no one wants to buy the cheapest thing out there. And you also don't want to be a chump and buy the most expensive one out there, and so people buy the middle one. And which one had the highest margins? Of course, the middle-priced detergent. Then folks like Walmart would figure out how to lay their stores out, what to put in the front of the store, what to put in the back of the store what to put on the top shelf, what to put on the bottom shelf. And what was great is that they could run so many experiments in doing this because as they changed the configuration, they could actually track the sales because people had to check out, and that's how they would experiment. And when these businesses moved online, folks like Amazon took those same learnings, but then further tried to figure out how people could tap that add to cart button and optimize the checkout flow, maybe even by making it a one-click purchase. And these were the beginnings of what we now consider to be UX patterns that are applied to other products like LinkedIn, one example of how progress framing is used. Or Facebook, how do you get people to spend more time on your website and not only be consumers of content, but also be producers of content. But what all of these examples and technology have in common is that if you look at them, they were thinking about how we change people's behavior within the frame of our devices. How do we get people to tap on this button more? How do we get people to spend a little bit more time on our website? The next frontier of how we apply this science is actually how do we get people to change their behavior outside of the devices? How do we not get people to buy more things, but how do we get people to change the way they're eating? 
to spend less money, to use less energy. This is where the science can be used. And so if you can possibly take two things away from this talk, the second one should be that it's time that we use the science to improve our own lives, not to get ourselves to buy more things, not for us to spend more time on our devices, but how can we actually use the science to improve our own lives? And again, that might be through the products you're building. It might be how you lead your team. And it might be just in how you live your own life. Now, that's great. Now, these, we mostly talked about the conceptual ideas of how we do this. Uh, I'll talk to you about how we actually do this and what I do today. And so today, I lead the behavior change efforts at a company called Jawbone. We make these wearable trackers that track your activity and your sleep and your heart rate. And we have that syncs to an app where you can log your food, you can log your mood, or anything else that rhymes with ood. I said I was a magician, not a comedian, okay? So, uh, And then we take those signals and we try to triangulate context about you. So we figure out whether or not you're a morning person, maybe you like to do yoga on Tuesdays, do you commute to work? And maybe even is today a good day to try to motivate you? And then we take that context and we apply it into uh, and we apply it into what we uh, build for our users. And we build these interventions to change their behaviors, like how early they're going to bed, or how uh, much they're moving that day. And the way that we do that is we go back to the science. And we largely look at judgment and decision making. We look at these theories that we can apply into our product. What's really cool is that we can take our favorite studies that maybe had, say, 200 people in their sample, and we can immediately replicate it, not in the lab, but in the field, and we can see how it actually works in real life. What's even cooler is that we can take these things that have worked with 200 people and instantly apply it to 200,000 people and then start to power analyses to understand how do these mechanisms interact with things like gender or BMI or geography or even mental states. So I'll show you a very specific example of how we've done this. This is one example of a piece of content that we created to help people go to bed earlier. And the way that we did this is we built it off of a theory called the commitment and consistency theory, popularized by a guy named Bob Cialdini. And he had these principles of persuasion. The basic idea is that if you say that you're going to do something, you're more likely to do it. Simple enough. Think about your friend who is running a marathon. She sends you an email to pledge five bucks. By pledging five bucks and acknowledging that you know she's committed to it, you made her a little bit more likely to actually get up at 6 a.m. to train for that marathon, and you made it a little bit more likely that on race day she follows through with it. So a derivation of this theory is something called the foot-in-the-door technique. The foot-in-the-door technique says that if you are trying to get someone to say yes to a big request, you're more likely to get that yes if you start with a smaller related request first. And the way that researchers study this is that they did it in the context of a neighborhood. They went to a neighborhood and said, hey, do you believe in safe driving? Or do you think that's important for our neighborhood? And you say, sure, why not? Well, if you do, would you mind putting this tiny little sign on your front lawn so as people drive by, they'll see that you support it? You say, sure. The trick is, two weeks later, they come by that same house. They say, hey, I see that you support safe driving. Well, since you do, would you mind putting this giant sign in front of your house that will block your way out? And it turns out that people are much more likely to say yes if they're asked about the small sign first. And why is that? It's because they were first given a small request, one that was very easy to say yes to. And then they followed up with a bigger request. And when they were asked the bigger request, our minds automatically go back to how we previously behaved. 
and we have a desire to be consistent with how we are portrayed, how people perceive us, and how we've behaved in the past. And therefore, we're more likely to say yes. And so this is exactly what we did in our product. We found a time when people would want to go to bed earlier. Uh, so it was a day where you might have woken up and you've gotten less sleep than average for a few days in a row. So what are you thinking when you wake up and you've gotten less sleep than average for a few days? I should probably get to bed earlier tonight. And so we send them this message that says, hey, you haven't been getting as much sleep. Why don't you try to aim for this earlier and very specific bedtime tonight? And this is something that's easy for people to say yes to because they were thinking about it already. They say yes, we remind them, we put it into their social feed. But then the trick is, about an hour before that bedtime of 11.15, at about 10.15, we send them this message and we say, hey, remember how you wanted to go to bed earlier tonight? Well, now is a good time for you to start getting ready for bed. That is the, mo that is the big request. When you're knee deep in Netflix, you're about to watch another episode of Stranger Things, and you know you're not gonna get to bed if that's the case. And by Stranger Things, I really mean the Real Housewives, but there's no judgment here, right? So that's the big request. The small request is, do you wanna do it? This is the big request. And that's all cool and great, but the real question is, does it work? And so in our randomized controlled trials, we found that when we put people through this flow, people go to bed on average 28 minutes earlier and are 72% more likely to hit their sleep goals. This is just one example of how we have taken a concept that, and not even a new concept, and applied it into our product in order to help our users live healthier lives. And this is just one example. We've also taken goal setting theory to help our users set more realistic goals and nudge at the right times. We get folks to move 12% more on average. Or the idea of appropriate competition, where we create a three-day uh, step battle and folks are more active by 16% over the course of a three-day match. These are just some simple examples of how we've taken research, research that has been published for all of us to use, that's accessible to all of us, and applied it into the product that we have today. And this is something that we can all do. And so, if you happen to be able to take away three things from this talk, <laughs> this is the last one, I promise, when you think about behavior change, when you think about applying behavioral science, know that it's not magic. Everyone can do it. Lean methodology teaches us to build MVPs and learn as quickly as possible. I think maybe one of the most underutilized resources out there is academic research. Academics have been building MVPs for us for decades. They're literally building little apps and trying to figure things out, little push notification tests. And not only that, they write them up in excruciating detail so that you know every step along the way. And so we should be standing on the shoulders of these very smart people when we're building our apps and not starting with experimentation ourselves, but using what they've learned first. And when we do that, you can either use it to apply it into a product, into technology like we have at Jawbone. You can use it to apply it into how you run your team, how you can make your team happier and healthier, or even, again, how you live your own life. If there are goals that you have been trying to achieve but you've been having trouble doing it, there are techniques out there. And when you do that, know that the details really matter. How you frame that progress to yourself. How you give that coaching to your team, whether or not you're threatening their autonomy. And when you use that science, know that you can certainly use it to get people to buy more things, but it's really time that we use this to help improve our own lives. And finally, 
that behavioral science is not some big secret that only a select few can use it. Everyone can use it. Academics have written this and want people to read their research and want people to use it and want people to apply it. And so we should all be doing it and using that research in whatever we are doing with our own lives. Thanks a lot, guys. Some questions now. Um, you can continue to ask questions through Slido if you have more. So the top question right now is, how can you use the science to improve products? Um, well, a lot of the talk was about that question. Um, I, I mean, the basic idea, it depends what you mean by improve your product. But in our context, uh, the mission of what we're doing is to improve the lives of our users. And so everything that we build is actually uh, based off of the science first. And so we start with hypothesis and say, OK, hey, we see that this uh, particular behavioral mechanism worked in the context of the study. How can we apply that in the context of healthy eating? How can we apply that into the context of moving more? Um, and so whenever we build any feature similar to this commitment one that I showed, we start with that and say, OK, well, this is a good place for us to start. And then we build a feature off of that, and we go through our normal build, measure, learn cycles from there. I'm curious, what have you learned about human psychology that really surprised you going through this process? Is there some kind of bizarre little nugget in oh, there? Oh, wow, there's so many. Maybe, I mean, the first one is just that a lot of people don't want to do the things that they know are important to them. <laughs> um, and so maybe one of the biggest learnings from behavioral science is really that knowledge is not enough. Uh, particularly for a group like this in the audience, most of us know that we shouldn't have fried foods, but we do. Most of us know that we should go to the gym and be more active, but we don't. And so knowledge, and a lot of folks focus on that. It's like, I need to learn more about how to go to the gym. I need to learn more about how to work out. Actually, there are a lot of these innate wirings in our brain that prevent us from doing these things that we already know are good for us. And so even if you're a highly educated individual, highly motivated individual in general, you could be doing some things that are actually hurting your ability to do things like stay healthy and eat better. Um, and then, have you seen any cases of how marketing is a two-way street, that what you do, like respecting autonomy, circles back in a feedback loop from your clients? Uh, you have an interpretation of that question? I'm not sure if I Is the person who asked that question, <laughs> are they sort of close by, so you can add an addendum? Oh, sure. So uh, I mean, uh, I think maybe another way to interpret that question is that if we're using these behavioral mechanisms, how does it pay off for the product in the long run? Uh, and how does it play back to us? Um, and again, for our product, our goal is to help our users live healthier lives. And so as we are more effective at that, and so if you're in week two of your experience and you see that you're actually changing your behavior and you actually are going to bed earlier, those are some of the hooks that actually help bring you back into the app itself. And of course, we also take advantage of those, and we say, and we remind you, and give, and apply a lot of the theory behind positive feedback, and play that back to you, and say, well, this is a good way for you to continue doing this, and this is the progress that you've made so far. So, Alex, next one: um, Can you share any retention metrics for Jawbone users? I used to be a Jawbone user, but stopped because I felt like I was tracking for the sake of tracking. Great question. So retention is one of those questions that comes up over and over in the wearable space, largely because I think a few blogs really just blew up about that. Uh, we don't share the specific numbers. But what I can say, based on what has been publicly shared in, in these various uh, blogs, is that 
One, retention, if you look at it compared to the other options out there. And so if you think about medications, if you think about folks who are told they have high cholesterol, or folks who are told they have diabetes, things where they know that if they take this pill, they will actually be improving the quality of their life, the retention for most of these wearables are better than the retention for those pills. And so the problem is not necessarily in a specific device or in the effectiveness. They're actually two very separate questions. And what we stand to gain by using technology is that we can continue to optimize that retention curve, whereas a pill is, is really hard for us to further optimize. Um, and then another one is, so Apple launched Sleep Cycle. Isn't that a replacement for Jawbone? Actually, uh, Sleep Cycle is a great product. Uh, however, uh, on-body measurement is a, a very different game. And uh, this, is, this just goes into the whole story around clinical validation of uh, wearables. And unfortunately, there are a lot of wearables out there that are less focused on accuracy. Accuracy and behavior change are two of the most important things to us at Jawbone. And so uh, what you really want to be using, whether it's Sleep Cycle from Apple or another product, what you should really be looking at is whether or not these measurements are actually clinically validated. And the way that we do the clinical validation is that we have folks in sleep labs wearing our device, but then also wearing all the crazy wires that are like stuck to their head and they have like, you know, everything. And then we actually try to figure out if we're matching in what we detect in the phases of sleep. So that's the research you should be doing before you pick up a different wearable or whether you're using uh, Sleep Cycle. And then how can, how can teams adjust to new ways of working in Lean without enacting reactants? So, uh, so this is something that I think is so important, especially for how we work together, is really it's about how you phrase your questions, how you speak, whether you're using the vocative tone. Um, and even really, so this study did it in a very explicit way because it would be very hard to document a study where you said, hey, I used a nicer tone. Um, however, even explicitly reminding people that they have the option to say no is the absolute easiest way to try to avoid reactants. However, you can also use subtler ways, again, in phrasing something as a question versus as a statement. Uh, using, uh, st stating something as a general, uh, uh, being generalized versus using the vocative tone. There are a lot of small ways that you can actually help the other person feel like they have more of a choice. And this isn't something that is a black box. I would say that as you think about how you think you would react to someone telling you that, whether or not you feel like you're being told what to do, is usually a pretty, pretty good start for that. And then can you share an example where you use behavioral design for purchasing experiences? Uh, so uh, my team at Jawbone explicitly does not do that. Uh, there are, and, and I apologize for skirting this question a little bit. That is very much in the world that uh, we believe that we should be using the science to actually help our users live better lives, live healthier. If that is an interest area of yours, there are actually lots and lots of great blogs and books out there about talking about how to apply behavioral science into, uh, into things like purchase flows. Um, in fact, a lot of common and uh, accepted UX patterns uh, are actually based on behavioral science. So. so someone actually wanted to know what's the best book or course on this topic that you can recommend? Great, great question. So I'd say the absolute best book on this is, uh, I showed this picture earlier, Daniel Kahneman's book called Thinking Fast and Slow. However, I will warn that it's a little bit dense, and so it can be a little bit hard to get through the entire book. I'd say two books that are a little bit lighter to read 
our uh, Dick Thaler's uh, misbehaving, uh, and then also Dan Ariely's predicting, uh, predictably irrational. So. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have left. So let's give Kelvin a nice uh, thank you. Thanks a lot.